when I'm coding all night. Project won't compile, it'll be alright. Computer science for life, and that's my direction. Instead of B-Balls, my homies throw exceptions. Welcome to Dangerous Minds, where we delve into the minds of biohackers, grinders, and take a closer look at the tech being implanted and developed by this community. Joining us on the program tonight, Damien, a grinder and partner with DangerousThings.com, Cooper, a sysadmin that is new to the biohacking community, and Cursor, a software developer with a master specializing in RF technology. So up first, we want to thank our sponsors, Dangerous Things, who delivers custom gadgetry for the discerning hacker and bio. So check them out at DangerousThings.com. If you or your organization is interested in sponsoring the efforts of Dangerous Mind Podcast, please feel free to reach out to us at DangerousMinds.io or email us at info at DangerousMinds.io and we'll be glad to talk to you about it. This week on Dangerous Minds Podcast, we have Machiavelli Davis, the chair human of Proposed Bio Studios, joining us today. Could you start by introducing yourself and telling us what biohacking, grinding and transhumanism all mean to you and how how you've got into it yourself. Hey, my name is Machiavelli Davis and uh, biohacking to me seems like the coolest thing that a curious person could do at this time in human society. Um, grinding seems like flesh modification and uh, transhumanism. I think it's the idea that what it means to be human ultimately in the cosmic sense is to continually completely redefine what that would mean to the human. Um, I got into biohacking. There's a lot of answers to that, but I don't know, a couple would be last year in Austin, I started the Biohack Austin meetup group and we started having guests like Gabriel Lucina. Uh, we had Matthew Marcus from Pembian to 3D print the rhinoceros horns in order to like disrupt the poaching market. Um, we had Rory Aronson from FarmBot, which is a precision CNC based farming robot with really great software, by the way. And uh, I, I just kept like holding these events a couple times a month until we were able to gain a core group of people from all walks of life who suddenly noticed that this this biohacking thing, which is kind of applying the hacker aesthetic, this penchant for cleverness and like elegant solutions in, in the wet space of our world. And lots of different people were able to recognize this as something that was to get into. And uh, at this point, we've been having Prophase Bio Studios, which is a nonprofit community biotechnology research and education incubator in Austin for one whole year almost. We started it uh, around January or February of 2016, and uh, it's really great. We have people just show up out of nowhere because they heard about it on the internet and uh, we bring them to the lab if they seem like they're sane and uh, basically have them help with some of the research that we're doing which i like to think is a great combination of revolutionary and accessible well you've already told us a little bit about the perface bio studios can huh. you expand a little bit more tell us about some of your recent projects that y'all have done and are continuing or just about to start so we're working on two projects that I'm really excited about talking about right now. The first one is Night Vision Eye Drops, and the second one is the FarmBot project. The, the first one, Night Vision Eye Drops, is a topic of research that I kind of inherited from Jeffrey Tibbetts and Gabriel Lucina, who went viral in fame last May, I think it was maybe March of 2015, 
where there's this Gizmodo article, there's a Wired article where it's like biohackers injected stuff in their eyes that makes them see in the dark. And after I read that article, I sent a tweet to Gabriel who's kind of big on Twitter. And uh, he responded back and it was it was good. Um, eventually we had some meetups at some point. I, I actually became his roommate on two separate occasions. And uh, we really got a lot of information exchanged that way about such a like kind of an esoteric topic. Basically the way that the night vision eye drops work is there's a chemical called chlorine E6, which is very similar to chlorophyll. And uh, it absorbs light at a different set of frequencies than the human eye does during night vision. And uh, not only does the molecule absorb the light, but it also re-emits it at a frequency that happens to be the most sensitive point to the human eye. This effectively allows the wearer of the eye drops to see more light at night. And uh, the first time that I tried these out myself was out in the Atacama Desert in Chile. It is the driest, most desolate desert on earth. When I was out there, my fingernails were like peeling because it was so dry. It was freezing cold. Uh, I felt like I it was like space levels of cold. And uh, I had the eye drops in. I rented a four-wheel drive vehicle. I drove 100 kilometers out from the nearest village. It was the new moon, so there was, there was no light from the moon. There was a very clear sky. There was a meteor shower going on, and it was my 25th birthday. It, it was sort of a present to myself, and the night vision eye drops did work. I'd, I'd gone stargazing earlier that night without them, also on, on previous days, and I was able to see uh, more than twice as many stars as before so that in total would be that at this time probably no human had ever seen before with the naked eye without a telescope and even if you're using a telescope you're still only looking at like a relatively narrow field of vision so what's really cool about the night vision eye drops is you can see the whole sky all at once and uh, it's this just incredible cosmic chapel, this like, to me, it was a great art piece. It was the most beautiful thing that I could ever hope to witness. Um, I envision eye drops, they're great. So basically where the research is going at our lab, one good thing about it is it's pretty cheap at this point in order to get the molecule, like it's reasonable. Uh, the eye drops are $1.25 right now per drop. And uh, what I want to do, this is, some, this is something that came to me over last night. Like I woke up and I realized this might be the coolest thing to do with them. But basically, a lot of the best ideas that I've gotten about this project have come from other people because as like a researcher, I guess, I've been looking at it scientifically and sort of trying to delve into various details of pathways and like how the light gets absorbed and re-emitted. But other people come at it with completely clear minds and they're kind of surprised the first time they hear it. And then they have like these really great suggestions that at first would think, no, that's not even possible, but wait a second. And then later I'm like, maybe that's, maybe that's actually the way to do it. So contact lenses. Because chlorine E6 probably doesn't bind to the retina when you're putting them in as eye drops. Uh, basically the, the eye drops go in the eye, they're these black, they make your eye black or run down your face. Basically, the way the eye drops work is probably the chlorine E6 kind of floats around the front of your eye or it, 
it maybe it goes into the eyeball a little bit. Yeah, chlorine E6 dissolves in water, which is great, unlike chlorophyll, which dissolves in fat. Um, contact lenses could be removable, and uh, they would probably work just the same, maybe better than the eye drops. You could control the concentration, and they wouldn't run down your face. It would probably be possible to basically make some aluminum milled uh, molds and uh, put the contact lens hydrogel solution in there, suspend some chlorine E6 in the contact lens. Uh, after it kind of cures or dries or cross-links, then you can take the contact lens out and just put it in your eye. I, I think this would work. Um, I've, I've looked at a lot of different approaches for where we should do the research, um, but this is what I'm most excited about at the moment. I was really into dissolvable contact lenses for the past few weeks because that's just really cool to me, like dissolvable wafers that you stick in your eye and apply drugs to your eye. What, what, do, you, what do you think of that? Well, as a person that really doesn't like to touch his eyes, I, I'm right. Uh, contact lenses, as you can see from the video, those of you at home, can't because this is an audio podcast uh i wear glasses uh because i really can't stand to touch my eyes i I don't like other people getting close to my eyes either so drops definitely are are, have always been uh, difficult for me just just alone just putting in paper that dissolves that that makes me concerned uh if it's a hydrogel yeah it probably won't be like a I'm thinking of when I think of like a wafer that dissolves, I'm thinking like an antacid, like a Tums. Right. Well, it's not going to fizz in your eye. Yeah, like a chalky thing, (laughs) which would be kind of ridiculous. But a gel, I guess, would be okay. Yeah, but then it's like, okay, is it going to leave you sticky? Is there like an aftertaste of sorts? Right. That's the best way I can describe the feeling would be, would it leave you sticky and gummy? And then uh, would you then, as a backup for that, uh, keep on hand some saline solution to be able to flush your eye after you're done, even if you're using drops, I think might be a good thing for those of us that would need to drive home. That that is a good point about the driving home part. But the dissolvable contact lenses are a really good idea because back when we were speaking with Jeff about it, he said taking in sort of say medicine or any form of drug, a gateway, a great gateway is through the eye. So I'd be interested to see what you come up with uh, with that one. One great thing about the contact lenses as opposed to the eye drops is like the eye drops after you put them in, you can't really just turn off the night vision. But if the if it stays suspended in the eye drop, then that would give you the option of being able to like put it in and take it out, that kind of thing, which has been a concern because we don't really know for sure how safe it is to be exposed to bright light while while having these eye drops in. Although um, I, I lean, I've been kind of leaning on the safe side personally, but still we haven't done the research yet. So there's that. Uh, So that brings me on to uh, another question. So I wanted to know what the biggest challenges you face um, being Machiavelli Davis of Proface Bio Studios. Do you get many people hating on what you do or? Well, I've, I've been careful to structure what I'm doing as something that I want people to find value in and not be afraid of because it's very easy for radically disruptive things that may be attractive to people like me to scare lots of people. 
but it's really important, I think, moving on in the development of our lives and of civilization in general to kind of be like, hey, it's okay, you can accept this great new thing, even though it's totally different than everything you expected before. So, and one of the reasons I'm pursuing the night vision project is because everybody I tell it to seems to really like it. They think it's cool. I would love if culture like, liked biohacking, if they weren't scared of it, because there are certain interests in this world that would benefit from fear-mongering about these very important changes that are going on with how people relate to their own biologies. Also, the FarmBot project is sort of something that I've crafted in a similar respect. Um, we are the uh, Anderson High School, is a local Austin high school. I, I want revolutionary biotech to be something that kids can learn. I want it to be something that's really that accessible and really that friendly and really that useful to everyone. Also, on the like extra coolness factor, I found out in Houston they sell Mars regularless simulants like out from the out from the NASA Space Center at Houston for a dollar a gallon. So we could totally just drive up to Houston, buy some Mars regolith that's soil that's made to be like Martian soil, and uh, bring it back down to the high school, throw it in the farm bot, and uh, start using robots to grow plants or even mushrooms. Um, you like on Martian soil and not think about it as something that we have to figure out after we leave earth. I mean, we can restructure soils. We can reprocess soils using mushrooms and other fungi and bacteria. Um, it would be great to make some Martian compost. I think that would just be really awesome. And to have kids doing it. Oh, it's even better. So what is the, the, sort of the end goal for the FarmBot project from your side? Well, the end goal of the FarmBot project is for people to um, have an automated means of sustainable like, self-production where like, there's this off-the-grid ideal that's sort of circulating, floating around nowadays as units where you can have everything you need to live and you can have it on any scale that you want. Like you don't have to depend on a large water system that you might not really trust because their water tests are terrible and sometimes they mess the numbers up and they put fluoride in the water when maybe you don't agree with that or whatever. Like water, energy, I don't agree with the way that a lot of the energy is produced in the world. At, at one point, I converted my bus, I was living in a school bus a few years ago, to run on vegetable oil and biodiesel. That was important to me because I feel like, you know, throwing money into the gas pump is a way of sponsoring organizations that are interested in war and terrorism. And I don't really want to do that because I really like traveling and just self-sustainability. So yeah. So is this, is this something that you can see sort of expanding to, you know, countries that are, are in, in desperate need of this kind of system as well? Yes, definitely. Like, um, and especially if, as you say, they, they don't require, you know, a massive amount of, say, water in order to farm crops and, uh, and things like that. 
Right. So FarmBot as a project, um, I love like I love my friend Rory for doing this. I, I really want to use it as a model for how I want to make some of my future companies. But FarmBot um, this past August and September had their Kickstarter, had their crowdfund, was able to sell $1 million in pre-orders, and half of those went to countries all over the world. The other, and about 50% uh, went to the US and to Canada. And so there's people all over the world that are going to be in just a few months that farm land in an automated way. Like subsistence farming is something that takes so much time. Um, I've, been, I've really been getting into nutrition lately since I got back from Chile. And uh, man, like fresh food that comes from a place that you know and trust, that, that you took care of, like it's really good for you. It's, it's nutritious. It's, it's something, I think it can be part of the way that genetic modification of our foods can change as the way it's interpreted by, you know, your common person who might be afraid of genetically modified food. If it's something that can come from your backyard that you know, or if you know some smart kid down the road that genetically modified your tomatoes to glow in the dark or some, I don't know, something to be more nutritious, uh, to create anti-cancer drugs for their grandma down the street who has cancer, then it can, it, it, it can be a home revolution. It can be something that's kind of like where we found in file sharing. I think that Lawrence Lessig talks about a really great concept of the read-write culture, where basically 100 years ago, uh, art was something that kind of came from people more often and after the commercialization of art through venues like MTV and record labels, people stopped making music at home and they started listening to music more and they stopped paying attention to their local artists and they started buying from the big mainstream artists that had great promoters. So I think with genetic modification, and I know it seems like I like, I may have skipped from the home robots to genetic modification, but it, it's a clear link, I think, for people. I to, think it's, it's yeah. maybe like the overall development of, of a project. I mean, we, we see it a lot, especially in this sort of random field we're working in. It's kind of, mm -hmm. it starts from one thing. If it can develop into another thing, I say, why not? Um, just quickly, right. um, you did, you, obviously, just going back on, on the project you did, uh, raised a lot of money and stuff. Just, um, if someone wanted to sort of see how that's going or get involved, is there any like direct way they could follow the progress of that or even, even back? Which project? Okay, well, sorry, I came out. Um, the farm farm book project was it that raised a lot of money on? Um, One million dollars. Yeah, exactly. So, so for someone that's missed that um, and still wants to, you know, really very interested in, in what, what you're talking about, is there any way they can follow that project further or even contribute in their own way to that project? So, Farmbot is a project that you can find at farmbot.io. It's a really great project which is created by Mark Shuttleworth, the uh, founder of Canonical Limited, which created Ubuntu. So the Shuttleworth Foundation is a really great foundation that supports nonprofit, uh, that supports open source engineering. And uh, they have supported FarmBot. There's been $1 million in pre-orders for FarmBot. Check out farmbot.io. It's awesome. 
one of my favorite things about FarmBot is the software because the software is the user interface for making this easy for somebody who might not be a like robotic FarmBot programmer to use. It, sh it should be something that anybody can benefit from, not just like somebody that spent years 3D printing or doing aquaponics. Um, the Night Vision Eye Drops project, I would uh, recommend reaching out to me personally at the Prophase BioStudios email. You can find that website, prophasebiostudios.org, as well as just prophasebiostudios at gmail.com. I'm, I'm working on a documentary. I've actually been filming every step of the process, and hopefully as we move to contact lenses and beyond, this will all be part of a, you know, like a, a film afterwards, kind of. Just, just something casual, not like a, a huge production. It, I want it to be intimate. I want it to be able to put you in the shoes of somebody who is working on this kind of project. So I know briefly you spoke there about the challenges of like, um, you know, sort of uh, the government putting, putting things and stuff in, in the future in general. Um, right. So I have quite, quite a long question here, but um, do you have a natural fight for personal freedom in your grind and also, you know, sort of like the right to augment and enhance, so to speak? So um, what, what groups have you aided through their struggle against the sort of government control idea and repression recently through biohacking? Can you ask the question again? I just missed two or three of the important words, I think. Sure thing. Um, so you, you spoke about, um, obviously, the government sort of have, having a, a stake and control in, in food specifically, but um, have you sort of aided any sort of other groups against the struggle of the, the sort of the government idea recently through biohacking? And also, um, have you ever seen any problems with your own sort of uh, fight for personal freedom in your grind? Well, I mean, this, this is the reason why I do everything that I do. And this is what really like puts, puts the flesh to the grindstone because um, some of this research really is something that could affect forceful interests and uh, maybe people who capitalize on fear and anxiety and frustration. So I, it's, it's, it's a difficult part of the process for me to um, try to figure out how to step conscientiously and how to keep things clean and how to strategize so that there are no like holes, I guess, so that the entire project is something that can't be destroyed in terms of legitimacy to the general population. It's that kind of thing is something that I think is really worth defending because not only are we peasants ever been explored before, but I believe we are fighting a mental war, a war of ideas, a war of the soul, where we try to make it more okay, more accepted, more admired, to go out into the unknown in the interest of bringing back something that could be vitally useful for all of humanity. I think that there, there will always be a danger in doing that, but we can, to some extent, control the amount of danger that we expose ourselves to from other humans. Like, from nature, 
that you, you, you can never fully know. You can do hours and hours, you can do years of research, but until you're there, like in the Amazon hunting down so-and-so species of whatever, or if you're setting foot on Mars for the first time, you can never really know if you'll make it out alive and bring back that thing that we also desperately need. But other humans, those, those, are, those are complicated risks that can constantly change. I only wish fortitude and courage to my fellow brethren who may be interested in pursuing similar ventures. It's, it's difficult, but I think as we work together, we can make it a lot easier. And through the benefit of community, community is the only true safety in my opinion, it's the only true um, way to make things easier for this human experience. Well, you spoke a little bit before we started recording about your implant. And so with, with respect to that, all, all of us are kind of very interested in that. We have several implants. Very curious what implants you currently have, uh, if you've ever had any removed in the past, but, and if you did, why were they? But also, a little bit of background that you gave earlier, do you have any future plans for other implants? If so, what are they? And could you tell us a little bit about it? So right now I only have one implant. I got it from Gabriel Lucina down in Chile back in February or March of this year. And I had never really considered getting an implant before. I had, uh, most of my life, until very, very recently, I was kind of, I don't know, happy with what I had, I guess. But um, implants are really cool to me because I never really conceived of the human body as something that was like, that could be as easily modified. Like you can just cut it open with the proper procedures of cleanliness and safety, knowing your anatomy and uh, like, I mean, to some extent, yeah. And uh, knowing a person that you trust to work on you, like you can totally do interesting things kind of easily. And uh, I got my first implant, it's just um, tag. So it's enough to store to me an encryption key. Um, I'm also, I also talk to, uh, th there's two ways that I relate to my implant. One way is I, uh, I was a very early adopter of Bitcoin. I put all of my personal uh, money into it fairly early on. And uh, to me, I feel like implants are ways of storing uh, value and storing uh, information that might not be as easily discernible as, I don't know, other methods of keeping them in traditional bank accounts or in computers even. Like what if you could hold your... Swiss bank account or your $1 million in Bitcoin on a set of implants. Um, that's kind of crazy. Uh, since I've like switched over to the Bitcoin lifestyle, when I go to stores and since I've got my implant, I just think about how much easier all of the accounting would be if we didn't have, I don't know. I just think that there is really a lot of efficiency and uh, sovereignty in financial accounting that can be gained by a mixture of cryptocurrency with implants. At the same time, um, something that I'm happy to see so many people afraid of in a sense, but 
also very unhappy in another sense. I was recently in an interview with Casper Korges, who started a, Estonia's e-residency program. So basically, they have these ARFIDs and uh, these flash memory chips that store cryptographic keys that allow you to sign documents as a citizen of Estonia. And uh, I checked uh, in these keys, and it could totally fit in one of my implants. So I would love to be, I would love to make that first step of mixing, of like adding this flexibility, fungibility, flowy, flowy ability to something like nationality, to something like enrollment in different legal systems. That would be pretty fascinating. I would much rather have somebody like me or, you know, some kind of like hacker, I guess, be the person, be the kind of person to set protocols in this sphere rather than some kind of like office worker, government agent wearing a suit. That would, that would just really turn out bad for everybody. I think we can all agree about that. It's, it's the hackers that we rely upon to set um, ethical and useful protocols in this like radically dangerous and vibrant and uh, abundant future that 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 can be had so that's how i relate to my one implant right now i would love to use it more often it actually turns out all of my technology happens to be at this time older than my implant so i am actually not able to read or write to the implant yet i'm waiting on like the next phone i get or the next computer i get that will have an NFC reader writer to it and to get to know more people that have been working in this space. I think there's um, a, a lot of projects at the moment going on uh, regarding what, what exactly what you're talking about. So things like cryptocurrency and even if you don't want to go that far, um, protecting yourself and I think uh, Amal from Dangerous Things uh, describes it as the union between the analog biology and the digital world so yes. um I th uh, there's the obviously the new um as we've been calling it previously um the the uk uh, it's actually the vivo key now so it's it's rebranded okay. and, and and getting going but um it's it has its own cryptographic functions within the within the tag that you can you can change eventually as it as it goes on but like you say it's putting the security in the hands of the people that wants to secure themselves instead of some bank or some guy that you know has been put in charge of a project saying yeah, yeah this will do this will do it's you taking your own initiative and saying let's get this going right i think that part of the Part of the thing that we can trust about it as something that will turn out well for people in the long run is if you're really, if like the way that we have things now, your money, your identity documents, they're owned in warehouses somewhere far away from you by people that you don't even have to like beg for, you have to beg for permission from them in order to use your own personal uh, stores of value, your own identity documents. But like if we start holding those things with like physically within ourselves, then it's, it's, it's psychologically a different kind of relationship. And I think that's great. I think that's something that could be really good about the way that we relate to our, uh, our digital likenesses. And just quickly, uh, you mentioned before about um, the, uh, you were saying a way of keeping um, the certain cryptography within, is it, do you say flash memory sticks or uh, you saw, saw a project about that? Was that 
some, and you said it could fit on your implant or it's something that you, you want to get done. What was that right. project? So the Estonian e-residency project in Estonia, they offer, like you can go through this series of you know, approvals and I think it costs $300 or something. Um, and you can get a card that's kind of like a, like a national identity card, but it's a Estonian e-residency card. And it has like some kind of chip on it that has your set of cryptographic keys there. And uh, I was confirmed that the cryptographic keys were small enough by Casper. Um, it's not necessarily legal or, I mean, it's not illegal either because nobody's done it before to pull that information off the card and put it onto some other medium and use that to sign, I don't know, contracts or something. Um, so in your grind with Proface Bio Studios, what's been your single best moment of achievement? Or if there's more than one, feel free to describe several. Well, I mean, the one that most obviously comes, the one that comes to mind first is the Atacama Desert trip that was really, really effective. That, that uh, was a f sort of a foundational, formative, transformative, visionary experience I had uh, with something that I was researching for the first time. Um, it's something that I heard about on the after I, like when I started getting interested in biohacking. And then there it was in my eye. It was really special to me. I think that the whole experience of starting the biohacker space has been also a really unique one to uh, kind of suddenly have a bunch of people um, looking, I don't know, like we, we have a board, we have a board of directors. And uh, although I've engaged in many forms of self-employment in the past, I've never been on a board of directors. I've had companies, but we, we've, we have lots of, we have a, like a wide range of people from the Austin area. We've got uh, scientific researchers, we've got entrepreneurs, we've got um, people at a community college, and uh, it's just really inspiring to see people come together again and again on trying to develop this environment to uh, hack in and uh, like i've been afraid that because we have a board of directors that maybe the board would kind of like unnecessarily just like stifle creativity um but it really hasn't happened yet i think that i really respect the people that i'm working with and uh, i feel heard in discussions and uh, i am i'm glad that somebody else keeps showing up that's really nice it's, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes, sometimes you feel alone. Sometimes I feel alone in this process. But it's really made a great deal of difference to me meeting certain other people. And they're doing something like I want to do. And they're doing fairly well. They're pretty happy about it, actually. It, it gives me energy to go on. And also seeing the kids at the high school and the middle school some of the students that come by from UT, you know, they're dissatisfied with what their education's providing them at UT at times. They uh, have said that sometimes it, feel like, it feels like they're learning more out doing weird experiments in storm drains with us than uh, 
than going to the biostatistics class for another boring day. So it, it feels good to promote true education, I guess, the, the personal exploration and the desire to develop. It could be a product. It could be just a personal question that drives you. But that, that's, that's, an, that's an oddly specific but also vague answer to the achievement, the sense of achievement that I felt in developing Prophase by SUs this year. This is the first year that we've had it too. One, one great thing about it that surprised me was how easy it was to build the lab. Um, I've always wanted to have a lab at home, like since I was a kid. But my parents didn't have the money to just like buy me a lab so that I could uh, do what it like. I mean, the first thing I wanted to do was just blow stuff up. But um, it, it actually turned out to be really easy to build the lab. All that I had to do was tell people that we were building a lab or that we had a lab. And it would, it would change the way that they approach the conversation, I guess. We made a, an agreement with the local university's zero waste initiative and uh, the surplus department. Our lab happens to be two miles away from UT Austin's surplus warehouse. And UT Austin's kind of a miniature city inside a city. So they have a lot of garbage. They, they have a lot of garbage that still works that came from very expensive labs. And uh, we were able to get first picks every week from their surplus warehouse. Uh, at one point, we also got a call from a local lab that said, hey, we're closing down today and everything has to be gone because this business is scaling up. It's, it's going from the research phase to the production phase. And we need to get rid of everything today because the, the lease is over. And uh, thank God we had somebody that was able to drop everything and drive over there and uh, get all kinds of goodies that would normally be so difficult to acquire. There've, there've been some lucky moments and there have been some really just when, when you start on the journey looking for, um, you know, trying to do something like this, I feel like there's, there's both surprising and uh, astonishingly beneficial. So I really appreciate the positive ones that we've had. Before we move on in the conversation, I'm going to take a quick moment to thank our friends and share a message. Uh, want to be more together at the 2017 Body Hacks in Austin, Texas, January 27th through 29th. You'll learn throughout a two-track, two-day conference, discover some of the best companies in body hacking, connect with your fellow cyborgs at the hub, and party at the worm. This year, put together, the Body Hacks Fashion Show opens the event on Friday night at the Austin Convention Center. Be more together at bodyhackingcon.com. And back to the conversation. Um, I was just wondering, in terms of obviously working in that sphere and also um, working with other people that want to join on to the, to the programs, how do you ensure the safety and also the ethical standpoint of, of your products and also the way you're working? Well, I think that's something that comes with many hours and days and weeks and months of careful consideration and uh, also talking to other people about what the plan is. Like, for example, with the FarmBot project, um, we are doing this at a school that has a manufacturing program. And uh, there is a manufacturing class where the kids will be manufacturing some of the parts that we need to make the FarmBot go. And so they have a teacher that is supposed to be teaching the manufacturing who's actually, I mean, he's a legendary teacher in the area. So 
I really trust him. And uh, just FarmBot is like a fairly safe thing to do. It's, there's no saws on it. Uh, it's made of metal, but it's really great. It, it makes plants, it makes cabbages for you, and it makes them automatically. With night vision, like I definitely don't have, I'm not dropping experimental eye drops in other people's eyes quite yet, just because of where we're at. I think that, I don't know, the only answer I have to provide at the moment is just like careful consideration and talking to a lot of people about the safety of it. I like, I think in ethical quandaries and dilemmas, even if like sometimes I don't even notice, I don't even realize that it's a ethical problem or it's an ethical quandary until I talk to somebody else about it because there's so many perspectives that are present in an ethical problem, it's really important to talk to all parties involved in order to figure out what's really going on here. I think that problems become problems, like in the real world, when something just happens and everybody's perspective hasn't been adequately accounted for ahead of time, which again, this is a mess and that will happen but it's up to us to reach out to one another and to try to build resilient communities of trust. That's, that's an answer. Um, what aspects of your products and projects make them unique in the biotech world? Um, so you've mentioned quite a few projects and you've only been right. going since January, February. So, Well, the Night Vision project is... As far as this is chlorine six again, like uh, Jeffrey Tivitz, he's still working on vitamin A2, um, which is an entirely distinct uh, approach. Night vision, I think that it's unique for sure because it's something that is easy to explain to somebody in a sense. Like a lot of research, you have to give them a lot of background information before they could hope to understand it, and then still it would be this oddly specific niche thing. But with night vision, everybody can instantly relate. That's really cool. I think that it's my suspicion, oddly enough, I may be completely wrong. It's my suspicion that DARPA has not pursued the research very far, but Eh, that's just that's just a feeling. That's just a feeling. Contact lenses. I was drawn to contact lenses because augmented and virtual reality enters the contact lens space. That will be a really sincerely transformative moment for the evolution of the cosmos as far as Earth is concerned. I think it would be really cool to start working on contact lenses right now. I just really wanted to do it, and I think I found a way that would work that isn't that expensive that I could do in my simple little lab. That, so I'm happy with that. The FarmBot project's really cool because it's really unique in the sense that, I don't know, I don't know anybody that uses robots to farm at home right now, except Rory. I think that it, it can flip a switch in people's minds in the way that maybe 3D printing hasn't yet. Like I've always said that in 3D printing, the, the biggest changes that will happen because of 3D printing will not at all be in 3D printed plastic. It's it, when 3D printers print other things like tissues or living plants. 
I think that FarmBot will alter people's access to nutrition and plant medicines. The software is like software is very expandable. There's a smart cow problem there where if one person codes software that works, everybody can just download it and benefit from it. Hopefully uh, they know who wrote it if, they, if the person wants to be identified and can offer some sort of, sort of value back if that person wants value back. So it sounds like you've already described some of them, but when was your light bulb or aha moment, or for that matter, when was your last one? If you've had a few along the way, and you've mentioned FarmBot a few times, I'm, I'm guessing that's got to be one of them. Yeah, it is. FarmBot, so I want to do something like FarmBot, but I want to do it bigger and differently. And uh, what I really like about FarmBot is it's so, it, it like, it's not dangerous. It's, it's something that everybody can say is probably interesting and good. That Rory, who I remember when he graduated from college at, U, at UC, like he was just a mechanical engineering student that finished college. And then he was able to get the Shuttleworth Foundation grant. And he posted the white paper and people from all over the internet just emailed him back and started working on the project with him for free at first. So it's something that I saw go from a kind of vague white paper to a marketable product that had a million dollars in pre-sales and it works strategically. So I really like that. And I can't write software at this time. So like all chassis is developed are relatively few and far between. I mean, one of the benefits of the universal tool head is the fact that not only does FarmBot plant seeds or water them, but it's infinitely extendable in the sense that there is a camera fitting that uses machine vision to identify weeds. And there is another tool head that is used to smash weeds when they're small. A mister could be developed for growing mushrooms or other types of plants that prefer mist. Um, what if we could grow slime molds? What if we could grow other elements of the animal and plants and bacterial and protozoan kingdom with this infinitely extendable tool head? The light bulb moment for me with FarmBot is the fact that he did it and that it worked and uh, that he's a friend of mine that I knew. It made me less afraid and think that my goals were more attainable. So, I mean, there you sort of spoken about how your goals are attainable with the help of other people. And, you know, you've, you've mentioned before in, in this talk about the, the spirit of community get, getting you to, to where you want to be. Right. Um, obviously, the background of us guys is, is mainly from the, the grinding and biotech sort of area. Do you see any sort of way that you can reach further goals or any way that you can see a union of what you do with the grinding and biohacking area? Um, do you mean like the union of grinding and biohacking with institutional biotechnology? Okay. I think that they can be friends. Uh, I think it depends on the people that are at the interface. Obviously, there is some, it's, it's going to be a rocky relationship. I think the institutions will wish to take some of the innovations that came hard earned from grinders 
and commercialize them without paying the grinders back because, oh, you said it was open source and you wanted to share it with everybody. And then they have got millions and millions of dollars. And then the original people who invented the technology don't even have the patents or whatever. So it's illegal for them to do it themselves. Like that's, that's on one end. And then on the other end, tactics that could be described by some people as espionage, where basically you have people in the institutions that start realizing, hey, this institution isn't really serving me, or maybe there's this great piece of research that was just forgotten about by the institution, but simultaneously uh, prevented it from going on forward when it could be really important for people's health. Um, so then you might have uh, defectors or something like WikiLeaks happening, uh, particularly with the very high stakes genetic modification culture where, I mean, I had some friends in college that just chilling to me, you know, one of them was a chemical engineer and uh, was talking about how excited they were to be given hush money or shut up money just for not saying what had gone on at their future. Like that's where a significant cut of their income would be coming from. And they liked it. Like that's scary to me. That's really scary to me. I should hope that there, that we will be living in a future where people are willing to refer to their own internal sense of ethics to what is right and what is wrong and to live by that accordingly and undyingly. Those are some of the problems where at the same time, like institutional biotechnology has a lot of great benefits to it. Grinding has a lot of great benefits. I mean, we, we love talking about that on the podcast and on online and with our friends and all, but like institutional biotechnology has a long history of research. It has a lot of one way that my lab experiences this at least in practice on a day to day is we get the surplus from the local institutional labs. That's what we built our lab on and we got it for free. There is a local nonprofit that's inside UT, University of Texas, Austin, called UTEX, that it is the largest algae library in the world. They have about 4,000 species of algae that they keep going day to day. And there's no other place in the world that does something like this at that scale. Algae were the first living organisms, like blue-green algae, evolution starts here biologically. I really want to talk about algae, but we'll stay on the question at the moment. Basically, UTEX is, is funded by the University of Austin, and it's a nonprofit that we're friends with. We're close friends with the people that work there, and uh, like, they want to do research in algae that maybe at UT, the institution doesn't want to fund at the time. And uh, the people that are working there really want to do their own personal projects, but they have day jobs and they work at UT in the institution. They've got lots of great ideas that they are not, that they are not, that they can't pursue both because of time. Although they have their own lab, 
it isn't their lab. They're working in a lab funded by somebody else, like not even a, another person really. And so they don't have sovereignty over their lab. In the institution, it's, it's hard for them to do that all the time. So basically like we meet at the pizza place across the street from the lab and they talk about all of the research that they want us to do at the biohacker space research project that looks good to me you can come into our lab and use some of the more expensive instruments at certain times one thing this reminds me of concepts of jurisdictional arbitrage this is something that comes from the offshore banking sphere or the, the people that like to hold multiple passports and travel jurisdictional arbitrage is a way of structuring your business and personal affairs so that with taxes and with some countries where there are no taxes and there are some countries where you would like to live and there are some countries where you would like to vacation. So why not have the best of all the countries instead of living in only one place and banking in only one place? Why not live where you enjoy, maybe where your family lives? do business in a country where there are, no, there are no taxes and then like have some, some pleasurable locations that you just like to go to. So you mentioned talking about, you want to talk more about algae. I do. I'm asking you about algae. Um, curious if you were talking about like the incubator systems, a friend of yours developed that is taking a break yes. from working down at Perphase or you talking about, fuel production, food production, oxygen production. Is this more of an open algae discussion or uh, is it more proprietary algae discussion? So right now where I'm at, I just want to talk about algae with everybody all the time and I think everybody should be growing algae. Algae, it's also really cool that algae are just the first living things, like that we would be going back all the way in time kind of so algae do the majority of the waste processing on Earth. You know, they float in the oceans and in the water, and they, they take up all of the waste products from the higher complexity organisms, and then they reprocess them into basically food for those higher complexity organisms. Like, if you look at the pinkness of salmon or the pinkness of krill, that pinkness is astaxanthin, which is an antioxidant that is produced by algae, actually come from the algae that the fish eat. One thing that's really been touching me lately in algae is food ethics. Like it's this really strange stance that I have that I'm like trying to promote in the future where like I have some friends that I respect very greatly in philosophy. They say that eating animals, there are ethical problems with this as much as for the majority of my life, I've eaten animals, and it hasn't bothered me personally that I know of. I, I have to admit that all of their philosophical arguments, to me, they seem watertight. Like, as much as I want to ignore them or toss them out because I have preferences or whatever, like, I kind of believe them. And uh, to me, like, I know that they relate to the psychology of the animals, but to me, like, even plants, are they have this aliveness to them. They have an intelligence that I believe is continuous and contiguous throughout 
the evolutionary biosphere. I think that the most ethical thing we could really do would be to eat the lowest possible organisms for nutrition, which would be algae and bacteria. And it just happens to be that algae, if grown well, are the most efficient things to eat because they're autotrophs. There's no, I mean, it's like in a circuit where of electricity and you try and pass it through a series of 10 resistors, a bunch of that energy turns into dual heat. It turns into just waste heat that is uh, dumped into the outer environment. When salmon live, they get their food from algae or from other fish that ate algae. And for the majority of the salmon's life, it spends its time swimming around, making heat. Um, if we, there's this rule of one to nine, and there's this like weird pyramid where every organism that eats the previous organism in the food web, about 90% of the energy is lost through that organism's life. So if you eat the thing, the amount of energy, the amount of like caloric density and the, the nutrition that's in that piece of meat or that piece of plant is only 10% of whatever it is it ate in its lifetime. We as living organisms really need to be careful of the energy that we are provided during the course of our lives. Because like if we had just 90% more energy, like we could do incredible things. And what if it's what if it's sort of there waiting to be taken and we just have to notice it? Like spirulina, I tell people, is the most nutritious food in the world. And uh, like it's crazy how much how like wide a swath of different vitamins and minerals and uh, omega three fatty acids and and all of the all of the different aspects of nutrition that are necessary to stimulate healthy optimal human life are found in spirulina just all by itself. I'm not saying people should convert their diets to eating only a single cell, which is what Soylent was kind of founded upon um, back back in the days of the California engineers just a couple of years ago. But I think that I'm certainly going to be converting my diet over to an algae-based diet in the next year. And I'm going to be working on publishing and publicizing this process. When you, um, you just mentioned Soylent there, are you referring to the, um, the mill replacement? Yeah. Yes, yes. I was just wondering from a personal point of view, have you tried any of the stuff? Because it's something I saw probably about two years ago, I think when it was just sort of getting set up and things. I know they've had their problems recently but in, in terms of, have you tried any of that or have you heard any good things about that too? Back when I was living a 100% Bitcoin lifestyle and I was like, I just, I was trying to avoid using any fiat currency at all. The main food source that's available for Bitcoin back in 2012 and 2013 was Soylent. Soylent was an early adopter of Bitcoin. I bought like a couple months of Soylent and I was like, okay, this is where the Bitcoin lifestyle is getting me. And I mean, I had some friends from the local cryptocurrency meetup back in uh, 2011 or 2012 who had made their own home version of Soylent back when DIY Soylent was a thing. And I tasted that and I like, I like the idea of Soylent. I mean, a lot of Robert Reinhardt is a very controversial person, I think. And I think that he likes that. And I respect, I respect that too. Not a shame to admit that, but he's a very controversial person. 
and uh, some people don't like Soylent. I think I think Soylent's great. I think it's so. I recently bought Coffeeist, which is the newest version of Soylent that has the coffee in it, and I think it's the first one that really tastes like good, as opposed to well, I guess I can drink this. And I personally have a deep love of food bars, like Cliff Bars and Granola Bars. Like they're just the perfect snacking solution for that is utterly delicious. It's caramelly. It's got crunchiness in it. Seems like it's nutritious. I mean, it's kind of sweet. And I'm I'm enthused by isomaltulose, which is a, a, a sweetener that they use that is really cool because only bacteria bacteria don't eat it very well. So if you have it in your teeth, you won't get the cavities from isomaltulose. Whereas humans can extract energy from it, which is awesome. I hope for more radical developments in the food sphere. I want people to be able to think about what they eat in new ways. I think that a lot of people in the world haven't considered what exactly it is they're eating. I know I didn't, I never did. I just ate what my parents gave me and then I kind of went from there. I mean, I love cooking, but it would be really cool to reconceptualize our food. I think that it's foundational for us. I mean, I've always liked the idea of Soylent like yourself. And when you said that, it just reminded me of the, I think it was like Soylent.me or something like that, where you could like pick your own ingredients and I, I tried it i remember i tried it and i think i overdid the salt in one of them so i made this massive batch it's gonna last nice. me probably like a month i like i had about like the tiniest drink of it and it had so much salt in it it was like like drinking from the sea <laughs> but i know like it's, it's, it's quite a good interesting idea and when you were talking about the bars i was worrying that you were gonna say you've had your uh, your batch of solent bars because um i know they've recently taking those oh yes i I Um, saw that email and uh, although it's tempting to like get free money back i i think i didn't have i don't remember having any gastrointestinal problems with this yeah i mean they say it's in in their own you know in their own right they've they've sent lots to the to the lab and none of them have come back to be bad and to be fair they have taken responsibility and, and they're actually currently available now you can't buy them um but I'd love to see where they're going. I mean, as you say, they're, they're doing a lot of stuff with, they talk about um, the algae and, and, and things like that they're going to do. But the idea of having something that could be a total replacement, and as long as those things that are within it are sourced from, you know, like environmentally friendly and nutritious and, you know, they're not messed with, it can only be a good thing. Definitely. I'm So I'm really into nootropics too. And I, I want to work on making a nootropic food bar like, I really like Soylent's current recipe, but I'm curious. So the only nootropic that I've found so far that tastes reasonably not bitter is oxyracetam. Tastes sweet. Why not throw it in food? Generally regarded as safe, according to the FDA, but uh, that never stops me from eating something. <laughs> what is safe to the FDA? <laughs> What is not, indeed. But you, you talked about nootropics. If you're, you're interested in that, can you give us a little bit more information if you've tried any of the supposed smart drugs? Or <laughs> would that be an interesting uh, different kind of food bar instead of just food replacement? Do like an algae-based food bar that has smart drugs mixed in yes. instead of just a regular caloric carb 
plant-based um, meal replacement bars because then you might have people like me interested that are working on not having so many carbs in my diet, you know, limiting myself to a drastic degree, but still being able to have benefits of vitamins, nutrients by the allergy, and then have some side benefits of nootropics. That sounds really delicious, Doug. I think you should uh, be in our focus group for the allergy nootropic food bars. The way that these drugs are developed is very interesting. But like right now, I, I've got some color acetam. It's my favorite of the racetams. I've tried a bunch of them. I've read about all of them online. Color acetam is really cool. When most people think about nootropics or when you talk to someone who's taken nootropics, what they think of as nootropics are the racetam family of biomolecules. There is like Nupept, which came from Russia in like 1997 or something. And then there's pyracetam, which for which the word nootropic was originally invented to market pyracetam. Racetams are great. I mean, they make you think faster, easier access to memories. Your field of vision can be expanded. Uh, the perception of colors can be increased in terms of things like saturation, the ability to detect the edges of objects or the reflections of things. Uh, the beauty of lights and music can be increased. You know, they affect amphoreceptors, which really known entirely how they work. But it is interesting that Nupept is a good, is such a potent anti-inflammatory drug. And there's been some suggestion, experience of brain fog that people have that's cleared up by certain drugs like racetams to reach the state of mental clarity. It may have to do with an inflammation of the brain that, that, these, that these drugs are kind of treating or offsetting. I really like coloracetam because I think it has the best mix of anti-anxiety effects with the smartness promoting effects, as well as it's been, it's been marketed to treat major depressive disorder. It benefits the mood and, and the intelligence. And it's the only racetam that's been shown to restructure the brain of rats to get smarter. I think that uh, we'll be having a class actually at Prophase maybe, maybe early next year on how to make your own alpha brain. Like there's this company called Onnit that's really like a lot of nootropics as a business is mostly marketing and sales. So Onnit just has really great marketing and sales. They are one of the first in the sphere to like really ascend. They've got Joe Rogan. They've got a lot of great athletes. Aubrey Marcus. I mean, Aubrey Marcus is a guy. He's, he lives in Austin. But they have products that they sell for upwards of $100 a bottle when it's totally possible to just like every bottle. I'm not saying that you should do this, but I am saying that you should do this. Every bottle has the concentration of each like kind of chemical and plant that's in the pill. And everybody likes alpha brain. Like it's crazy. It's really well formulated. You can totally just buy all of those things yourself and then mix them and then put them in pills. If you're um, interested in, in what, what you're talking about now, which is essentially getting rid of the sort of the marketing and the, the greedy aspects of, of what's out there at the moment and actually focusing on you know what's going to help for someone like me who's obviously all the way the other side of the world how how would i um sort of get any information from 
from the class you're doing? Is there any sort of like uploads you'll be doing or any way of me to follow it at all? Well, we stream at meetups when requested. So I think that would be a good one to stream. There is a YouTube channel. If you search for Biohack ATX, that had our earliest meetups before we became a full-on biohacker space and we were just like a meetup group. Any of the streamed events, those are all safe. those are all recorded on Google Hangouts so that they can be referred back to in the future. I think it would be really cool to stream the Make Your Own Alpha Brain meetup. That's a great idea. Please, please, please do. <laughs> so, yeah, that would be a, a great thing to be able to watch if you were to stream that. So uh, later on in, in time, uh, if you send us a link to that, we'll share that out as well for you. Okay, awesome. So, um, well, I mean, you've mentioned an awful lot of the projects that you're currently working on, but is there any more information that you can on any of those without saying anything obviously that you don't want to? It's quite impressive, to be honest. <laughs> But is there any more information you can provide on any of them? Maybe if you guys need any help with anything, it just might help get people knowing about what you're doing. And if they can help in any way, they can just uh, ping you over a message. Yeah, if, if anything I've said at all interests you, even a little bit, don't be afraid to email me. Very happy to talk about this with you and try to find a set of collaborative skills where we can make things happen that, uh, humans have never before done. We've kind of danced around it throughout the conversation. You actually thought about approaching NASA with your products, uh, your projects, as a technical aspect towards their full-on mission to Mars? Yes. So I am going to be speaking at the Cities in Space New Worlds Conference. At, on November 4th and 5th in Austin, Texas. Uh, the city is, it's a two-day conference. Uh, one of the days is a day that's focused on uh, kids. It's a space conference where the kids can like develop these projects and enter them in a competition. And I think it's a, uh, this year, they're supposed to design a Mars base or a free, a free space. Uh, colonization scheme but one of the days is for the kids I will be judging the the competition I will be speaking to the kids I think it's about 750 of them about biohacking and uh, I will be talking about the farmbot project as well as the night vision eye drops project with the night vision eye drops as soon as we can get the data uh, from the ERG recordings that data will be funneled into the local Austin schools where there is an alternative space-based curriculum that some of the schools are being offered the option of using for teaching science to the kids. And there's going to be one month of that space-based curriculum that is a biotechnology section. Basically the way that it works, and Holly Meliar is the one who has set this up. The project is called Cities in Space is the kids will get data from local research groups that are doing something having to do with space. They will be asked to take the data and do things like draw a linear regression or determine the significance of the data and draw their own conclusions from it. And we'll get mentorship time with different researchers. So newworlds.space is the website 
for the space conference. I have a, I have a quick question because obviously you're, you've been involved in quite a lot of different startups in general. Is there, any, is there anything you want to say to someone that's, you know, looking at their first start, whether that's investment or actually just their own, you know, off their own back, any sort of advice you'd have for them or to sort of ease their concerns? I think the, the most incredible thing about it to me is it's kind of like in the book, The Alchemist, actually. I don't know if you had some kind of dream, the way that the world responds to you changes. When I told people that we were building a lab. Just, it was so different than before when I didn't tell them that we were building a lab, but I liked science or something. I could have said all the same things about the same project, but if I didn't have that switch flipped in my mind, at least, that like the switch that it's happening, we're doing this, I'm doing it. Uh, that's what people believe, I guess. That's what people want to be around more of because there is a certain... Uh, scarcity of that kind of commitment to uh, the longer and the, the harder you try to do that thing you I mean it's it's more difficult than just going to your regular job but it's really rewarding and uh, there are things that you will learn that you could not ever learn from the life before you flip the switch everything changes so we've spoken to uh, many different people as you know and we like to see everyone's views on biohacking whether it be from your aspect of it not being a body modification as such so nootropics or some something along those lines to people that are building implantable tech but what's your opinion for the future of biohacking new sense of freedom and uh, how people relate to uh, the concept of their own identities. Brought back to the very concrete today, we live in a world where there are these cartels, essentially, that control our identity, our personal, like, first-person selves. And uh, I think that through biohacking, this gives us the chance to uh, recreate our own selves. This is who I am that's changing. And I would really like to see uh, the world flourish in that, that new kind of freedom where who you are as a biological entity is no longer a limitation in the sense that you know that you will be that way until you die. If you don't, if, if you could choose to renew yourself biologically in so many different ways, all right. Well, indeed, this was a great conversation. And just want to say special thanks to Machiavelli Davis, Chair Human from Perphase Bio Studios for taking the time to talk to us today. If you want to learn more about the journey we take weekly, check out DangerousMinds.io. All of us want to thank you, our listeners, for joining us as we explore further the tech and the people behind it within this fastly growing community of biohacking, grinding, and plantable technology today. Please feel free to reach out to us with questions, comments. You're welcome to find us either at our homepage, DangerousMinds.io, Twitter, or Facebook. And perhaps we might one day talk to you about the work and the projects you're exploring and developing. Until next week, seek the spark. 
project won't compile It'll be alright, computer science for life And that's my direction Instead of beatballs, my home is throw exceptions